going to be in the book of 1 Peter this morning. Book of 1 Peter, going back there after moving away last week. We're a few weeks into our, uh, our series. It's going to close us down this summer. going to take us a couple more weeks here uh, to get through. But we are uh, in this series called You Are Here. Uh, and we're attempting to answer the questions, where is Jesus leading and are we willing to go there too? Where is Jesus leading and are we willing to go there too? Some of the fundamental questions of what it means to call ourselves followers of Christ. The fundamental questions of what it means to be disciples of Jesus. And we've looked at uh, several different things in this already. We've looked at what it means to follow Jesus no matter where he calls, no matter where the, the GPS, so to speak, sends us. We looked uh, last week at what it means to follow Jesus and what uh, it looks like to be a, a, a Christian, what it looks like to be a disciple. All those are the same thing. Follow Jesus, be a Christian, be a disciple. There's not different levels of being a Christian. Those are all the same thing. You're saying the same thing there. But we looked last week and we asked the question, what does family look like in the life of a disciple? It's one of the foundational questions a disciple of Jesus must ask. There are few questions more important than those that revolve around our family. And while that may be true, there are other massive questions that come up when following Jesus. And today we're going to look at uh, the, the question of following Jesus that revolves around the area where we spend most of our time, where we spend most of our lives. What does discipleship, following Jesus, what does that look like when we get outside the walls of the church, when we get outside the walls of our homes, and we get out into the rest of the world? What does it look like to be a disciple when we leave the places that give us comfort and security and whenever we go to the places that ex instead expose us and leave us completely unprotected? What does it look like to be a disciple in our jobs, in our relationships with our friends, with non-Christians, in a community that may or may not be hostile to what we believe? What does it mean to be a disciple when being a disciple isn't the norm? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. There's little doubt I could give you all kinds of studies. I could cite all kinds of different numbers. But honestly, anecdotally, I think that will be enough. There's little doubt that being a Christian in our American society today is very, very different than it used to be. To hold beliefs that have gone virtually unquestioned for 2,000 years today is, is to be dismissed as a bigot. Perhaps like no other time in recent memory, the public sins of our Christian forefathers in the Christian faith have led to a, a public accounting that we now as Christians must reckon with. From racism and slavery to abuse and the debasing and degrading of women to inhumane and horrific treatment of those in the LGBT community, each of these things have convinced much of the watching world that Christianity has little to offer, and that, in fact, as many, as many would, uh, would suggest, the world would be better off if Christianity weren't here all together. This is a growing sentiment. This is a growing thing to be able to see. Just yesterday on Twitter, there were, uh, there were hashtags that were trending all about the, the nature of Christianity and how it is no good for the world. 
And that is where we live. That is the culture in which we, we, we swim. Now, we may be in Jefferson City and things may be a bit different here, but we would be foolish to think that it's totally different where we're at and that that is not coming here. So where does that leave us here in this culture? When being a, a, a Christian is no longer advantageous to us socially. For those of us that are here that call ourselves and seek to be followers of Jesus, now what? If this is the growing sentiment around us, and our convictions are increasingly under fire and being pressed against us, then how do we move and operate within this culture? In 1 Peter, we'll begin, where we began our series, we'll look at some brief exhortations that Peter gives, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of move around through some of this and see how it guides us, how it directs us, and where it pushes us. Peter's giving these exhortations to a church that is being persecuted day in and day out in a way very different than us. But perhaps there is still much for us to learn from what Peter says. So look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Peter writes to this church, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We'll stop there for just a second. Now this is an odd way for Peter to make a transition. He's just finished talking about the church. We'll actually be in what he just talked about. That's what we're going to be talking about here in just a couple of weeks. But he's just left this section where he's talking about what it means to call yourself a Christian in the context of a community, in the context of a church. And now he gives this exhortation that on its own, frankly, doesn't make very much sense. It's what you would call a, a non sequitur if you're looking at it. It doesn't make sense how you get from point A to point, point B. Like the two, the two things here in this sentence don't seem to make a lot of sense. It's, it's not, you, you wouldn't think you'd get from one to the other. So now he's, he's writing this. and let, Now let, let's read this again, just the very beginning. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... That's who he addresses this exhortation to. Sojourners and exiles. Effectively, what he's saying is prisoners. Those of you that, that are in a hostile culture, those of you that are in a place you don't call home. This is what's meant when he says sojourners. Exiles, you're far from home. You're far from a place of security. You're far from a place where your culture, your way of life, your worldview is normal. Those of you that... That, that would be you. Here's my exhortation to you. These people are excluded. These people are left out. They have no place to call home. Let me just ask you, this is, this is how I like to study scripture. I, I like to say, if you were writing this letter, if you were Peter, what do you put right after this? What's the second half of this sentence for, for you? To those of you who are sojourners and exiles, Peter writes, what would you say? What would you want to tell them to encourage them? It will be okay? All will be well? Would you, would, you, would you quote Paul and say, all things work together for good, sojourners and exiles? I know you're being persecuted, but don't worry. What God, or what the, the enemy means for evil, God means for good. That's scriptural, that totally works. That would be an appropriate exhortation. Would you want to say, God hasn't forgotten you in your exile? It'll be okay. 
Would you say God won't put you in a situation that you can't handle? I hope you wouldn't say that because that's not scriptural and that's not in the Bible. But would you want to say that to someone? Say, you can handle this. God's got you. Would you want to give them an encouragement? Peter takes a bit of a different approach. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Effectively, he says, you exiles, I know you're scared. I know you're nervous. I know you're afraid you might have to die for your belief in Jesus. Well, here's what you should do. Let me give you this encouragement. Let me give you this challenge. My encouragement is to stay away from those things that your flesh so desperately wants. Because those things are the things that are against God's will. And your body still chases after them. Your flesh still wants them. But you exiles and sojourners, stay away from those things. Because that's what will really kill you. And that's what really wars against your soul. That is a profound thing to tell someone. Listen, it's hard to know what to tell people when they're suffering. It's one of the hardest things about two humans connecting with one another is how do you, how do you suffer well with someone? What do you tell them whenever they're suffering? I'll tell you this, my advice if I were a counselor is not to say what Peter just said. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make any sense. If you're suffering, stay away from those things that you so desperately want that are sinful. What? Peter, that doesn't make any sense. How is that going to help me in my suffering? That's just going to remind me that I can't have what I really want. I'm already suffering, Peter. Why are you telling me this? It is a profound thing to tell someone who is suffering and being persecuted that their greatest enemy doesn't come from without, but from within. That is a hard thing to comprehend and to understand. These are people that probably just had their house robbed. I guarantee you they know someone within their community, their Christian community that has. These are people that have probably endured the loss of a job that are financially struggling because they are Christians, they have been fired from their jobs. These are people that have probably been put in jail. That's who Peter's talking to. And yet Peter is concerned that if they begin to put all their focus on what's around them, then they will be overtaken by the sin that is within them. And perhaps, just perhaps, this is where Christianity has gotten so many things wrong for so long and is being held accountable for in our day. Lest we be guilty of the same sin and pointing out the sin of others and not reckoning with ourselves, it would be wise that we heed Peter's warning and not get caught staring down the sins around us while neglecting the sin in our own lives. If we spent more time repenting of our own sin, we'd have much less time to spend looking at the sin of others. Repentance is hard work. It's diligent work. It's soul-tilling. It's soul-wrenching. It's, heart, it's, it's heart-wrenching. You, you have to work hard at repentance. You don't just say, I'm done, and then you move on. You, you repent 
Every day of your sin, you turn from your sin, you take up your cross and follow him, what we looked at last week. You don't repent in five minutes every morning and then move on to the sins of the world. That's not what repentance looks like. Now listen, I'm not saying there is no place for speaking to our culture's sins. Certainly there is. But we must remember that this is a culture that we also too live in and we drink very deeply from often. There is a place for calling out the sin of others, for looking at the sin of others, for saying what Scripture says to address things. But we do well to know how much of that culture we have drank, we have drank from, that we have, we have uh, ingested within us without even, without even knowing it before we start calling out the sin of others. And that takes time to stare at yourself, to search yourself, to find ourselves, to know if we are in the faith, as Scripture tells us. We would do well to, to focus on our own repentance first and foremost. To not worry so much on what is without and worry so much more about what is within. To paraphrase Peter, dear persecuted exiles, don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the sin that will kill your soul. What's even more interesting in Peter's exhortation is what follows verse 11. It's not just the sin within someone and what it does to someone that is his concern. He has a bigger picture in mind than just what the sin will do to an individual. Look in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is concerned about the sinful conduct of persecuted Christians because he knows they have an opportunity before them. As this new, growing faith kind of gets going, it's attracted the attention of a lot of people. That's why they're being persecuted. Peter knows that people are trying to figure out what this Christianity thing is all about. And the lies of these Christians are now on full display for people to see. And for Peter, this means that we have a very unique opportunity. As Christians, when we find ourselves in a situation where our worldview, where our ethics, our lifestyle, our choices, our self-denial, when those things don't line up with everyone else's, then we are in a position to communicate the gospel in a uniquely powerful way. Do you see how that works? Whenever you are different, whenever the, the way you carry out your life, the way you, you do things doesn't line up with the rest of the world, there are certain things that will come with that. I'm convinced that over the next decade or so, people will be watching Christians. As the persecution ratchets, ratchets up, as the, as the social shaming continues to grow, as, as people are pressured more and more, people will be watching churches. They will be watching Christians to find out what do they do when the thumb gets pressed down on them. W what happens then? As Christianity becomes less acceptable, as it becomes easier to dismiss us, they will watch they will see how we spend our money, how we treat our wives, how we fight for our marriages, how we raise our kids, 
how we handle true suffering. They will watch how we live our lives, and it will get noticed. Now, it will get ridiculed by some. Something different always is. It will offend some. Something different always does. But it should be different. It should be different. The way we go to the ballot box should be different. Now you vote for whoever you want to vote for. That's a complicated thing today, deciding who to vote for, who not to vote for. But they will notice if our pretend savior on election day is the person that we prop up and that we truly put our trust in. And they will notice that because they know that playbook well because it's the same play that they run over and over and over. For far too many Christians, that's the playbook we've been running for decades. Vote in the right person, make him our savior, put all our trust in this person, and then we go and the world scoffs at us, and rightly so, because we trust in the same things that they do. As Francis Chan says, there's something wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. But when our lives stand out as something different, something different than what the world values, when our lives stand out that they that we go about our lives in a different way than they do. It will force people to reckon with how they do those things. Will, will they ridicule? Sure. Will, will, will they scorn? Sure. Will they make fun of us? Absolutely. Will they persecute us more? Almost certainly. But in the process, whenever you do something different and you live differently, at some point, most will have to ask the question, why are they doing that with their money, and what does that mean about the way I do that with mine? Why are they treating their wife that way, and why am I treating mine the way I do? Why are they choosing to spend their Sunday mornings at church, and I'm choosing to do it elsewhere? Why are they doing these things so differently than I am? And who knows where things might go from there. When people see you handling suffering and pain as one that hopes in something bigger and something stronger, and this world is not our home, as sojourners and exiles, as aliens, as Peter says elsewhere, that too will cause people to take notice. Have you ever had the the experience where the loudest critic the most outspoken reviler, then maybe even in the cloud of darkness or in in an incognito kind of way comes to you for advice whenever their world crashes down? I have. If Christians can live as Peter has instructed, this will play out in a thousand different ways in our culture in the coming years. And we would do well not to pretend that we have it all figured out, not to gloat in their pain. We would do well to be ready to give them an answer for the hope that lies within us, as Peter will say in just one more chapter. Peter is concerned with both our lives and with the lives of of those that are around us, enemies or not. As he writes to this persecuted church, to these sojourners and exiles, he isn't just concerned about that church. 
He's concerned about those that watch that church too. Enemies, onlookers, curious. He's concerned about how they'll see the church too. As I read this, I couldn't help but be reminded of another passage, one that you probably have uh, you've probably known at least parts of these verses. If you've been around Providence for, uh, for a year or two, you've probably heard me speak about this. But turn with me to the Old Testament, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. One of the most famous verses in all of Scripture is here. You probably have a coffee mug with it on it somewhere. But before we can get to that, we've got to hear what, what God's instructions are through the prophet Jeremiah to a people very, in a lot of ways, in a very similar position to the ones Peter writes to. Exiles, taken captive, drug away from their home, effectively slaves to those that rule over them. They're waiting for God to show up and deliver them from this persecution. They're waiting for God to show up and deliver them and pull them out of this place. And this is what God tells them. Verse 4. Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice how it says whom I have sent into exile. That's a whole other sermon. But whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's a pretty powerful thing. That is a pretty powerful thing that God lays out there. Where where the city that persecutes them finds its welfare, you too will find your welfare. You skip down to verse 10. He continues on. He says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Slap that on the coffee mug and keep going. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart... I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your, your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So what God says is, do you want me to show up and be your deliverer? Then start seeking out the good of those that are around you. Start seeking to grow those who are around you. Look out for the welfare of the outsiders, not even your own community. Then I'll hear you. And then you can pray and I will answer. And I know the plans that I have for you. For prospering, not to harm you. For a hope and a future. What a beautiful promise. But that promise comes after he's told us to love the people that hate us the most. Not just love them, to seek their good. 
when I was in high school, I remember a conversation I had with uh, my small group leader at the time. He worked at a, at a nonprofit in Knoxville, and he was very proud of what he did. I don't remember what it was, but I remember he talked about it a lot, and he was very proud of it. And he asked us, a bunch of high school sophomores and juniors, what we thought we were going to do with our lives for a job. What we thought we were going to do whenever we grow up. Now, Carson Newman will be back here in just a few weeks, but I guarantee you if I got some sophomores and juniors from Carson Newman and asked them what they were going to do for a job, they would be hard-pressed to tell me what it is they were going to do whenever they grew up. Why my small group leader was asking me in high school what I was going to do, I have no idea. But he was asking that question. It's just not something that you know. But man, we all had answers. We all thought we knew what we were going to do. We chatted back and forth, and a few things kind of eventually went around, and I came up with my answer. And in the self-assured, half-thought nature of uh, most high schoolers, and certainly uh, myself, I said I didn't see how I could do anything that wasn't vocational ministry. Now, I'd never said anything like that before. Where it came from in that conversation, I have absolutely no idea where that came from. But I, I said I, I couldn't do anything that wasn't vocational ministry. Or basically try to figure out some way I could get paid to do ministry. In my mind, if I was going to spend 40 plus hours doing something, it needed to be quote unquote Christian. And you may be thinking, well look, you're a pastor, it all worked out. Things, that's just the way it goes. Let me just tell you, that was not a straight line from that moment to this one. Very much not. In fact, I think I pretty much went the exact opposite direction right after I said this. So I don't really know why I said this or, or where it came from, but this was not the direction that I was, uh, that the, that I was heading. Uh, I went a long time after I said this, assuming I would become anything but uh, a pastor. So uh, I spent many years preparing for what I call a secular job. Now, I can look back and I can see how God was preparing and working in my heart at that time, but I had no idea what was going on uh, then. But I promise you, it was not as straight a line as you might imagine. Regardless, I felt sure in my breakdown of the situation. I was certain of my logic. If I was going to spend this much time, then I couldn't waste that time doing something else. I couldn't waste that time doing something else for someone else, making someone else money, making myself money, whatever. I, I just couldn't see myself doing that as I said that. If I were going to spend that much time, it needed to be for Jesus. And the only thing that could be for Jesus was to get paid to do ministry. At least in my small, narrow view of what ministry was, that's what I, what I said. Well, let me just tell you, my small group leader did not take kindly to me saying that at all. He was quite offended that I would say that. Uh, he rightly pushed back um, I, he pushed back pretty hard, though, probably harder than was warranted for my, uh, for my comments. Perhaps he sensed an arrogance that was in there that I didn't recognize, which is entirely possible. Uh, I was in high school, after all. Uh, but he asked the question, is that the only way to be a good Christian, to have a job that paid you to do ministry? And he proceeded to let me have it. But the point was made. I was certain I had the correct answer. My logic was, was certain. But the point that he was making was there. To me, ministry was what the professionals did. And those that weren't professionals, we were just here to learn. 
As we show up at church, we're just here to learn. As we sit out there and we listen to the professionals stand up there and talk, we're just here to learn. Ministry is what the professionals did. And that is a wholly unbiblical view of Christianity. And what I've been able to see and what I've been able to gather and what I've been able to grow in my faith and see is that, first of all, the minister's job isn't to do the ministry, but to equip the saints to do the ministry. Too many Christians view church as though church members are the collective coach calling the plays and the staff, maybe the elders as well, are the players that are to go and run them. That's completely backwards to the model that Scripture puts out. I might be a player coach standing up here as a pastor, but I'm definitely not just the player and the only player that's out on the field. We are all working in this together. And more to the point this morning, following the words of Jeremiah here, every one of those things that is listed in Jeremiah are part of bringing the fruit of the gospel to bear on a culture that isn't just different than them, but is increasingly hostile to them. And you see, what I want to be able to do to kind of press the analogy a little bit more, we're talking about you are here, how do you get to the next thing, how do you get to the the next place, is that perhaps the route to ministry isn't one simple road and you have to do it this way, and here's what ministry looks like, but perhaps there are all kinds of different ways in which you can follow Jesus. Is it vocational ministry? Maybe. Eventually, that's where I got, in spite of me trying my best not to do that for the longest time. But more than likely, what it is for you is that you are faithful to God right where you're at. Moms and dads, employees and employers, working with others, friends of others, sharing the gospel with others. Bringing the gospel to bear, the the truth of Jesus Christ to bear, to, to make your own world, your own bubble, your own connections flourish. And you help them to flourish not because that is something great for you, but because it will be great for them. And then in return, you are able to do that. So you girl you you folks that are that are teachers, you guys that are teachers, getting ready to head back to school. You can care for those in your classroom exactly in the way that Jeremiah lays out here. And so in your classroom, the welfare of that classroom is for your welfare too. For those of you that are at home changing diapers, that's your place there. That's where God has called you to help them thrive. The welfare of your family is for your own welfare. But then you step out and you talk about friendships and you talk about getting to know others and finding other places where you can serve and you can be a part. You see, what I want us to be able to do is to get out of this mindset that I had in high school that said, this is the route to Jesus. Find a job, get paid, get to Jesus. And instead, what I want you to be able to do is to be able to look around and say, here's how I get to Jesus, and here's how I get to Jesus, and here's how I get to Jesus, and here's how I get to Jesus. And all of those routes are you serving along the way, caring for others along the way. There is no express lane. It's you stopping and helping others as you follow him. That's what it means to follow Christ, build houses, plant gardens, marry and have kids, seek the welfare of the city. 
I could go on and on and on. Where does this play out for you? What does it look like for you in your job when you go to work tomorrow? You seek the welfare of your company. You seek the welfare of your, of your, of your co-workers. In doing so, that is part of bringing the gospel to bear. Is that the gospel itself? Absolutely not. Making your company more money is not the same thing as the gospel. What you want to be able to do is that you help your coworkers, you help those that are around you, so that when the time comes, when it's right, whenever Christ, who you're following, says, now is when you talk about the gospel, you're in a position to talk about the gospel. Because you served well. You've cared well. They've seen you as a selfless person. They've seen the way you spend your money, the way you spend your vacations, the way you spend your Sunday morning the way you love your wife, the way you love your husband, the way you love your kids, the way you serve your church, the way you do all of these things. They've seen the way you do those things. And at some point, you're able to say, hey, yeah, let's talk. But if they perceive you're only about yourself, your words will ring hollow and empty. So you care for them and you seek their welfare. And in their welfare, you too will find yours. This is the vision for gospel ministry that Peter has, that Jeremiah has. It removes the blinders and the limitations of saying there's only one way to do ministry, and it says there are millions of ways to do ministry. There's all kinds of ways to get there. God's instructions are to put your roots down, to get to know the city, to work to grow the city, and to do things that help it flourish. And here at Providence, as a church, this is exactly what we're doing next week. This is exactly what we're doing on Wednesday night with the, with the Life Outreach, or Wednesday morning with the Life Outreach Center and the students. This is exactly why we're going to these schools. This is exactly why Love Jeffco exists. And I hope to give you more and more opportunities to serve and to hear more and more stories about that service in coming weeks and months. If we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus, then we too must be vigilant and diligent about the opportunities that are around us. The world will be watching. In the next decade or so, the world will be watching to see how we respond. Will we cower? Will we wilt? Will we fight back and punch with a vengeance? Or will we live a life of repentance, coupled with love and service? I know which one Peter calls us to. And I know which one Jesus calls us to. That's not an easy path. It's not even a path that makes sense most of the time. It's a path that not only will others look at you and say, why are you doing this? But a lot of the times you will look at yourself and say, why am I doing this? But that's the path that we're called to. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, we may not know exactly what it feels like to be in the church that Peter writes to, to be in their shoes. We may not know their level of persecution. We may not understand exactly what it is that they're going through. But we know what you have called us to. We know what it looks like, what it feels like to go and to serve when we don't want to serve. 
to care for others when we can barely care for ourselves. To die to ourselves, to abstain from the things that our flesh calls us to. Father, we have much to repent of. Things we know all too well. Things that are in our blind spots that have yet to be revealed. Father, may our lives, may our church be a church marked by repentance. More than we are a church marked by our stance against this or our stance for that, even as you call us to those things, Father, may we be known as a church that humbly seeks your face and that repents when you call us to repent and that loves when you call us to love and that serves when you call us to serve. Father, may that be what we are known for. Because that looks like following Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.